0: Hello, this is Matt Hale bringing you the December January, or December prone, I should say really, it's based on a December January magazine primarily, and that issue is 382. However, we will be talking about two other previous issues, one the summer one, 2014, and also possibly October as well. But I'm joined today, more importantly, in the studio by Peter Suchin. Now, Peter is a writer and critic, and he an artist, particularly as well, and had a show recently uh, this year in Leeds, which is a one person show at And Model Gallery. Hello, Peter. Thanks so much for Hi, coming Matt. in. We're sitting here on a Saturday. It's cold, <laughs> and uh, I know you've got a slight throat problem, but I think you're yeah. going, to be, going to be fine with that. But um, we're also going to try and cover, which is a bit unusual, really. Normally, we tend to stick to one magazine and a text by somebody in that magazine. Sometimes we have a studio full of five people down to two people. But this instance, we're going to give it a go with just you and covering some things you've written, particularly in two issues, the summer one and this one for December. And they're basically book reviews is what you have done. And, and you've written um, in these two issues reviews which are kind of running, flowing with a text between books um, covering 20 books, as far as I know. Um, just, yeah, in terms of. About
1: 18, I think. About 18.
0: So, it's obviously a lot of books, um, which we will not go into huge in depth about each one, but there are crossover points, um, both in the type of book. I mean, one thing I know for sure about them is that they generally are written either as a criticism or they are academics writing about their ideas i mean they are primarily would you would you say critic criti- critical books i mean books by critics
1: well there's two there's two or three different kinds i suppose um most of the ones i've looked at in the two issues of the magazine uh i would say most of the writers are academics uh, by which i mean they also teach some of them are art historians which is a different slightly different kind of writing perhaps to criticism in the sense you you might be using it uh one or two of the books as well are um I imagine they've been commissioned by publishers, and the, pub- uh, and the publishers have said to the authors, "I want a book that does this. I want an introductory book for a wide audience on art and politics." So there's obviously a to and fro between somebody wanting to write something and planning it themselves, and then then a uh, what is it? A publisher specifying to it. I mean that always happens, obviously. But I'm trying to just talk about for a minute or think about the different things that generate the books. Yes. And then, Another kind of book that's here as well uh, is a kind of catalogue that's also a book. So, Well, there's one or two publications like that. A catalogue, if you like, for a show. I'm thinking of the Adrian Henry uh, show in Liverpool, which has an accompanying book. But it's got several scholarly essays. So it's kind of a catalogue and a book about the artists, because catalogues aren't always um, full of essays not they? absolutely not sometimes essay. they can be just visual yeah. only can't they yeah or they Literally. just have a very short introduction yeah so this in the case of the adrian henry book it's in between two things it's called total artists it's in between on the one hand backing up and um if you like strengthening and framing an exhibition but then
0: it's going into his practice more widely as well now just b- backing slightly yeah you're what i was interested in also in letting our listeners understand um I mean, it's probably common with quite a lot of publications. Art Monthly, um, the magazine we're we're talking about your text being published in, receives lots of books. We we get sent many books by publishers to our office from which we select. Our editor, um, David Barrett, selects the books down to a, a few piles which are of interest. There are other piles which are of less interest to us because we have a particular um, remit which is mm. basically contemporary visual art. So David then would say to you, Peter, can you come and choose yeah. some books from the piles he's got?
1: Yeah, that's, that's right. David makes um, a, a kind of long shortlist, if that's the right uh, phrase. So he might say, well, you know, come into the office this week sometime. The books are on my desk. If I'm not there, get, get into the office. And there's 20 books or 20 or so books on the table and pick those you'd like to write about. And that's just for one issue? That's for one issue. So what's been asked of the writer there is to deal with... uh, Well, I mean, I suppose you could do it... I noticed that other reviewers have done it in a different way where they've covered five books. But David himself, when he's done uh, the roundups of the books coming in, has referred to or covered... I mean, covered's a strange word, but referred to seven or eight books himself. So... If you like that's i was thinking i'm going to try and do this try and cover as many books as possible and i suppose that's what the editor is trying to do to, because you get a lot of books in more than you can cover some books get a whole review to themselves obviously occasionally but um with the, with the kind of pile i select from i look through them and i think well i'd like to which ones would i'd like to um read and look at and think about and also as i'm looking through the pile which ones do I feel I can bring together in a sort of coherent way? Because Yeah, the, the, I links right, between yeah. them. But that yeah. means, that
0: means obviously, you've got to actually look at them all you've got to, make to the find links. the links well, to yeah. make them in the first place. Yeah, yeah you, do, you
1: do have to. But yeah. there's things I think, well, I'm not really... There might be a book about a subject, you know, about an area in the art world I really don't feel I know much about and I don't really feel I should be reviewing it because, I mean, I might learn a lot from the book, but I wouldn't really be able to be very um, knowingly critical about it. Or
0: Yeah, and the uh, idea is that you you ultimately... I mean, well, I was why I mentioned critics, critics writing books yeah. as a possibility. For some of these books, the authors may or may not be actually criticizing something or coming up certainly with lots of opinions. Hmm. And then you, who are also critic, um, yeah. seen as a critic because you write reviews for Art Monthly hmm. and essays and things, and 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 I believe also have written catalog essays for artists yeah, as well as being an artist yourself, you you are then criticizing. Critics, in a way, that's yeah. what I was implying. Well,
1: there is that phrase uh, phrase in uh, T. S. Eliot to criticise the critic, you know, brought you know by the critic almost. But, yeah. but what I try and do, I try to be uh, as fair as possible to the to the text. So. um But what I mean by that is I try I don't try to catch them out or anything if I know about subject I try to take them on their own terms and I do that when I'm writing exhibition reviews as well try and see what the artist or in this case the writer is trying to do and see if it does it and if it does it well and if it if it has any uh, as it were bits missing that should be and for example there's quite a lot of books on art and politics in the last um, you know year or so coming out and I've trying to cover some of those. And some of them, I think, miss out on what they should be mentioning. Now, I'm not writing the book, so it might seem a bit arrogant to say they should be mentioning them. But what I mean by that is that, you know, one would expect a certain certain things to be covered.
0: OK, that, see, that's, to me, very interesting, the idea that you think they've missed something out. Now, that would... Obviously, what that reflects is your approach to being a critic, partly, doesn't yeah. it? That, what you just said, obviously. And there are different types of approach to criticism certainly are. And, and, and I think that's quite interesting I mean you know I think we have an hour program uh, we have an opportunity for you for a critic to explain slightly well, how, what their approach to, can, to being um, a critic is and I think I that's right really, I can try yes. no I'm not saying you know completely or fully but but fundamentally um just can you tell me say if there was a description of a kind of critic what what would you fit into as in you know there were different say different there were models, a, yeah. a list of different types of critics which I know you you obviously are aware of the variety what, what would you say you were
1: um I think I try to be self-critical and self-reflexive in my criticism so that I suppose that means knowing <laughs> try, you know trying to um be aware of the approach one's using and the angle one's using and the Perhaps the theoretical models one, one is using, rather than assume any kind of neutrality. It's not neutral. I'm, I'm not. A, you know, it's not a degree zero type of writing criticism. It's always coming from somewhere and with certain preconceptions. So, I, I mean, I'm very interested in um, the notion of criticism as being a self reflexive discipline that comments, as it were, on its and understands its own position as it's being written. And that's a, that's a position that Roland Barthes wrote about an essay, a very uh, a short but very interesting essay called "What Is Criticism" from 1963. And Bart said it's the critic's responsibility to not just, you know, unpack the work he or she is looking at, but to make it clear to the reader what position that critic, Bart in this case, in that case would be, what position they're coming from, what their angle is, as opposed to pretending to any kind of, they're outside of all positions, they're not, they're in a position, so if you're a Marxist critic, you should kind of go, well, this is a Marxist reading, or I'm using psychoanalysis now to unpack this, rather than uh, assume any sort of neutrality. So it, I think some critics do pretend to neutrality, uh, like, bo- like bo- bo- what you'd call bourgeois critics in the newspapers. some of them. Yes. Um, because they don't, or, you know, the, I think also... the. And this is a big part of it, maybe, the, of the issue of criticism. I don't really think of criticism as a discipline. It's not a clear discipline. Uh, I know now that in some universities, criti- criticism has been taught. On, like the Royal College where you can do a course in critical writing. But it's not really a profession. <laughs> it's kind of a marginal thing. So it's not as if there's you know, set rules as this, this and this kind. And when I tried to put together a kind of understanding of the different critical modes, I really looked around and tried to... Uh, cobble together different you know read think of different approaches
0: and and would that that be affected by it uh, well, it sounds like it would be what you were actually were being asked to consider yeah. so i mean for instance some of the, some of the things w- w- you've written about some quite briefly might use might be about psychoanalysis yeah. um some of them are about an artist who who may uh, you know, wish to be seen in a particular talk, light, so forth, yeah. and and in, and I mean, I mean, just for instance, I mean, w- w- just to to try and bring in some of the some of the things you did actually uh, write about, you you wanted to talk about a particular book. Um, first, I think, which is um between the black box and the white cube: expanded yeah. cinema and post-war art, which is um by Andrew V. Urosky. Yeah. Now, now, I, I mean, ha- how did you approach that book? Okay, well, or did that? How did that book make you make you approach yeah. it? Well, in
1: in the actual review itself, you get you know the, the brief is to cover all the books within one thousand and fifty words, and one way to do it is to write more. You know, you could give you could divide that up, couldn't you? Equal amounts for each book you've picked, but. Another way to do it, which is, which is one I've gone for, which is recommended actually by the editor, by David, he thinks it's a good way to do it, but it, is to select some books and write more about them than the other books. And one reason I gave more words to the uh, Orozki book is because I thought it was very, very good. And what I liked about it is that, well, first of all, I haven't got any particular or deep interest in video art, uh, expanded cinema, I'm kind of interested in it generally, but I don't have a deep knowledge of it and I don't necessarily want to know a huge amount about it, but reading that uh, book, Between the Black Box and the White Cube, which is which takes that as its main subject, there's so much other information in the book about the art world generally and about changing attitudes to TV, cinema versus video art in the gallery or video in the gallery, that it's such a, like a well-rounded book, although very scholarly and very, it's quite um, detailed, but not D- not dull, dully academic if, if I can say that and I thought that was a really good general book that's got, as I say you know Rusky's got a specialism it's not vague at all but it's a, a you give you a very good um, critical view of post-world war art world and the rise of video arts not so much video art but the place of video and film within the art world and how that's changed
0: yeah, your last line, you say, oh, yeah. Yoroski's scholarly volume, in short, renders art and politics as a solid and inseparable field of effects. Yeah, that's, that's quite good. <laughs> well, the, I hope he
1: likes it if he ever reads the review. But, when, um, when, when you say
0: effects there, um, um, in short, renders art and politics as a solid, inseparable field of e- effects. What, what do what I mean? You, yes. I yes. think
1: what I mean is that you can't really separate, and he understands this and argues this, you can't separate art and the political. You can't separate them out completely. You can maybe in a kind of discussion. But in reality, what happens in the art world and what happens with video art and and what happened to the cinema in sort of opposition. So he's arguing the cinema cinema gets more and more, the conventional cinema, it becomes more almost like a prison, a fixed way to sit and watch the... um, Things unfolding on the screen, as it were. Whereas the art world lets you wander around; you can look at the video close up. The video might be on the floor, it might be a big projection, and there's a different viewing relationship. And I'm saying that that is a political act, you know, to like free up the viewer and let them have more control over their own relation to the. So, I think he's very conscious of all those things. That's why I think it's a good book.
0: That that one you reviewed in the summer issue, yeah, and um, which which we that was called Art Politics and Play that yeah. that roundup. Um, which is on page thirty one. Um, were, were there other in the in the in the, the one in this current issue, the December issue? Yeah. Were there were there was there any political, particularly political books? Well, I think there were a couple, but um,
1: there's a. I mean, one book that I kind of. I mean, that's a. Type, if you like the book, books, a type of book, you could say it's a kind of book that's produced by someone who's an academic, but he's got his his horizons are wider. Than just writing for six other academics in his expert field, you know. And I think that broad, broad, that breadth he has and that uh, complexity, but clarity of writing for the most part, is kind of echoed, if you like, in one of the books in the um, December January roundup. And that's a book by Janet uh, Cranach, if I'm saying her
0: name correctly. Possibly Cranach, I'm not sure. Uh, Yeah,
1: uh, it's got a Y in the middle. Um, Who knows? Yeah. It's uh, called Nauman Revisited. No, it's not. No, Nauman Reiterated. Yes. (laughs) Better get it right. And that book, again, it's, you know, a specialist study of Bruce Nauman, the artist. But it's also dealing with all sorts of things going on around uh, him in the art world and that he's affected by, you know. So changes in uh, the technology of and the attitudes to uh, sound art. Changes in... um, the role of the artist, and she comments on how um, Naumann himself comments implicitly in his works on other artists, his contemporaries. So again, it's a book that's focused on one thing in particular, but it's so well-rounded. You really learn a lot about the art world generally and, of course, about Bruce. So I like those, you know, like the Orozco book, I like those books because they are aware, the authors are aware of the wider field of reading than just... As I say, the academics in the specialist uh, discipline.
0: So that's now and reiterated by Janet Cranak. I think it is Cranak. K R A Y N A K. Yeah. Krainak, yeah. Um, um, I mean, as uh, this this particular one uh, roundup in the December-January called "Transgressions and Transmissions." That was your title. Yeah. Well, well, the title for mine, yeah. What? What, you, what? Why did you call it that? <laughs> your God roundup that? Do you remember? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, because
1: there are uh, the, in the summer um, roundup. Uh, which I call Art, Politics and Play. A lot of those books are about art and politics, and I think there's a wave or a new, perhaps a fashion in the last year or two for books on art and politics, right? But in this roundup, which isn't more, which is quite as focused on art and politics, there are one or two things. So the, in this one, I, um, I've got what I called it now: <laughs> Transgressions. Um, I thought that there was a discussion in some of these books about artists transgressing boundaries. But also transmissions is to do with passing things on, like tra- passing things on to another tradition, or from one yes. person to another within tradition. But also, I ended up by reviewing Walter Benjamin's the anthology of Walter Benjamin's writings. Um, well, radio scripts, ben, Be- radio scripts, Benjamin. really, yeah, scripts and a few essays as well on um, of his broadcasts in Germany in the 20s and 30s. So, although Walter Benjamin's uh, the actual recordings of the of the Radio programs. There are no recordings that anyone can find. A lot of the scripts he um, so wrote, they were
0: scripted. I mean, yeah. that's interesting in itself to me. That yeah. He, so Benjamin must have
1: written them, and then he read them. Yeah. And so sure, the maybe. scripts were were uh, they've been available in Germany, I think, for a few years, but they're only now just being they've just been translated. So that's the book I've been reading, Radio Benjamin, and and that's I think that's a very interesting book, and it's um, a kind of you know, it's a, I mean, it's. It, it interested me because a lot of the scripts are written for children. For children, it's a, ch- a children's a series, yeah. if you like. I was very surprised and, by that. Yeah, well, I, I, I'd heard of this, but I mean, I've not been able to read it until it's you know been translated now. But one of the things Benjamin, uh, well, it's been argued he tried to do, is as um, Germany became more and more, you know, as Hitler rose up in power in Germany, uh, Benjamin inserted comments into his radio broadcast for children to, to get them to kind of be very cautious about the bad man, you know. So, in fact, Benjamin's, although he's writing for an audience of children, he's not treating them in a patronising way at all. He's saying, just watch out and see what's going on here, in you know, in your country.
0: So, so it's sort of te- teaching transmet- po- political appro- yeah, and or awareness a didactic, approach.
1: I mean, they're very entertaining essays about all sorts of different subjects. I mean, quite strange subjects for children, like witchcraft. Uh, Berlin dialects. I can't remember. what Street it was. vendors. Street vendors. Which
0: which trials?
1: there's a nice essay. If that's the, the nice, well, nice might be a silly word, but you know, a short but very uh, interesting piece about the Tay Bridge disaster, which is uh, famously when a, uh, I don't know what year it was actually. I think it's the end of the 1890s. I'm not sure without checking it, but when um, the Tay Bridge in Scotland collapsed and the train just disappeared, the lights went out, no-one could see it. It was a terrible uh, evening, absolutely uh, windswept evening, and the, and the bridge collapsed. And, be- I mean, what I'm trying to say is Benjamin, is you know, putting images of horror into the children's heads, I suppose. But yeah. It's, that's education, isn't it, telling them about but, about the world. So I call that... That's why I use the word uh, transmissions, because they are real yes, transmissions. Yes, yes,
0: he is. Uh, uh, B- Benjamin is mentioned also in um, this thing about Agent Henry. Uh, Agent oh, Henry, Agent yeah. yeah. Henry, total artist, edited by Catherine Markangeli. M-A-R-C-A-N-G-E-L-I. Sorry, we're having lots of names, which are a little hard to say, but that's just the way yeah. it is. And um, he was mentioned briefly in, in, in one of the essays within that book. I think Rick Poyner.
1: No, that's the... Uh does he know oh, no i beg your pardon no it's um, somebody else actually i'm afraid anyway but in in that in that book he's in mentioned one of the essays, yeah.
0: it, it talks about um, henry having a personal library and 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 it being sort of trying to be compared to walter benjamin having a library and i know you have a library yeah, I'll, um, I'll, yourself I'll uh, and, and 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 the implication was really that if, if henry had this amazing library um, which somehow was you know going to sort of make him more mm. erudite and more important but not to say that he wasn't important because I mean, he did do some very great things, well, bringing people together, yeah, didn't he? I think it
1: was important, but not necessarily in the way or ways that the uh, book on Henry is trying to suggest. So I felt with that comment, uh, com- sort of comparing Adrian Henry's library and how you know what diversity of reading material it contained, which I presume it did. You know, haven't seen the thing myself. There's a photograph of it in the in the book. But Benjamin, you know, also a famous collector of books, including of children's books, actually. So what seems to be being uh, implied at that point that you mentioned is that Adrian Henry, like Walter Benjamin, had this incredible library, so therefore he's kind of up there with, in status as a cultural commentator with Benjamin. And I, don't, I personally don't think that's true. I, think, I don't think that there's a comparison, actually. Benjamin is definitely a major, major critical figure from the 20th century, in, and his effects have been on many different uh, areas of the arts of culture, right, generally. And I'm not saying h and edge is unimportant, but I see him more as a figure that connects different things. I think he did do some important things. One of the things discussed in the book that he supposedly did, it kind of gets questioned a little bit, but it's in the book, is that he was the first person to put on a new type of art in the 60s called A Happening. Uh, in Britain, he put a, an event on in Liverpool, and I think um, maybe the ICA are doing something about that soon, aren't they? Yeah,
0: they are in January. There is going to be a show, which um, I just managed to catch by Googling something about Henry before I came. But it's mm-hmm. the first happenings, Agent Henry in the 60s and 70s. And it, I think it opens on January 27th and, um, and, yeah. and runs I right mean, through to March.
1: I'm not trying to, you know, necessarily demean it, But I'm saying, it, I mean, this book does several things. It, on the one hand, as I said before, it's a catalogue for there's a, particular so it's a sort of
0: celebration, It's a really, celebration it, really? and there's
1: no, that's the problem really it's not very critical and i'm not saying he- I mean there's there's interesting things about henry uh, uh there's a, a long essay uh, from the i think seventies printed in full in in the book by henry and in it he's saying why does one have to go to London to be an artist and he's in defense of um and i mean it's in a good way regionalism i don't mean it's provincial and about no no i mean uh, he's in defense of staying in Liverpool and working there and using you know People are creative, they're like they are everywhere, so there's some quite interesting positions with Henry and his work. Well, it's a
0: very important issue. I mean, he even, he even yeah. lines with the current situation in Britain now, where yeah. we, with Scotland trying to be as independent as possible, the people, yeah, you know, people, all, in, yeah, them, people in the yeah. north of England are now wanting well, like, the same sort of thing. All fiefdoms, almost, of, uh, well, I know, and, and rightly positions. so, really. Uh, uh, he, did, uh, he did get hold yeah. of Alan Caprow who, who, who was a, a big happenings person. I believe yeah. he really coined yeah, the what phrase. Was the, and he's the in America, here. wasn't he? And he was in America, <laughs> wasn't he? But what I mean is that they wrote to each
1: Prow initiated it, not Henry, yeah. and Henry, you know, was on the, on the button, you know, he knew what was going on, he was in touch with a lot of people. Yeah. And I think he's, a, he's a quite important as a sort of... Uh, well, he, that book, it, it was '74, I think, '74. his book, Adrian Henry's book, Environments and Happenings, which is discussed in the, you know, the new book on Henry. I think that's a key book. Uh, it's an important book in terms of educating people about a different art form and looking into the path into Dada performance. And uh, futurism, and then you know, more recent performance in the 60s and 70s. So, I think Henry's a connector of things. But if you looked at his paintings, for example, I think they're not first rate pop art. You know, they look like pop art, but they're then they're, they're kind of mannerist, they're not as interesting as for me, anyway. You know, uh, I mean, me. you
0: mean as Warhol, um, yeah, or, or, certainly or, or not Robert. as interesting as Warhol, yeah. No, so uh,
1: you know, he's an interesting figure, and I think as I think I said in the uh, in the review. Um, it's important to, you know, look in detail at, at, recent, at recent history, 60s and 70s. That's partly what that book does. It looks at Henry's place in, uh, you know, pop culture in Britain and, and in, in the art world. And I'm not saying that's unimportant, but I just felt that comparison with Benjamin was a kind of sleight of hand,
0: you know. You mentioned Dada just then. Yeah, so, sorry about that. <laughs> no, no, Just there, no. You, there is a book which you cover know, called Dada 1916 in Theory yeah. by David W. Jones, um, which, which I, I th- sounded interesting. I mean, you, you've actually got a copy, I think, with us. But, yeah, um, it's here. Yeah, yeah. what, what did you think of it? Well, I thought it was very good, right?
1: Um, it's, again, an academic-y book, by which I mean it's written by an academic and it's written in an academic style. But it's written um, with a certain argument, which I think is uh, very powerful. Whether one could carry it out, and the argument, I suppose, is that um, the attitudes of radicality and transgression of hierarchies implicit in Dada could be, or and or should be, brought back into play again. So it's saying, <coughs> excuse me, it's saying that Dada's political stance although historically now it's in the museum, it's 100 years ago, the political stance and the radical treatment of language and the implications of that should be reinvigorated. And what um, what um, Daffy Jones does is he looks at more recent theorists like Deleuze and kind of says, look at these ideas of Deleuze. They're already, to some degree, in the Dadaist use of language and the performance and the breaking up of the word. And... That is a. Both these characters, the Dardoists and the um, modern theorists, you know, in this case, um, Deleuze and some of the other people he mentions, they're questioning the notion of the human subject's coherence and opening the subject up to a different sense of self, and that is a radical thing. So it's almost like projecting a modern reading back onto the Dardists. But what I did find a a bit annoying about the book, which I said in the review, or wrote in the review, was that. It's seventy. I mean, I, obviously, I didn't pay for this because I'm reviewing it. But it's seventy pounds. This book in hardback. The book I've got, the copy I've got, is already falling apart. And Liverpool University Press, who published it, list at the front of the books uh, thirteen professors, all with professor in front of the name, as if to say this book's validated by all these very important people. Yet it's a book challenging the hierarchies of uh, of society. So. I got a bit, of another thought, is it is this to imply that only people with a professorial salary can afford this book, or should buy it? Because it's seventy pounds. It's not going to be a popular read, is it?
0: Well, it won't be easily accessible to the people exactly. who who hopefully would yeah. be most gain would gain most from reading it. Yeah. I mean, I mean. Anyway, we're doing our small bit now for the uh, for the listeners who are, who will know about it. Hopefully, All it may order come it from out. A library for the, yeah, know. and it, it may you it may come online. It may be online. I don't know. We're yeah. not aware of that, but. but but fundamentally, you thought his take and its relationship, his his, his connection between Dada and now, well, w- it was good. Although
1: uh, he's an academic, uh, I can't remember which university he teaches that, But he's an academic. What I liked about it was the argument transgresses the world of academia. It's not just saying other experts, other scholars. You'll be interested in this, and and explaining, you know, some new, you know, newly. Um, Discovered historical facts about Dada for a specialist audience. It's saying that Dada is a radical movement whose radicality has been uh, marginalised, if you like, by being put into the museum, because the word museum is linked to the word mausoleum, it's where things that are dead are stored. And I like the way that he's, he's saying, look at this, it never reached its full potential for radical change. Let's look at it again and react about it. So it's really got a very serious political intention. That book, I think, although it's quite—it's not an easy read necessarily. It's quite complicated and it's scholarly, but it, it, it's uh, looking at the bigger picture of society and and art, which I think some other books on art and politics don't do. And when I use the word academic, I often think of a, an approach that is scholarly but doesn't really go outside of very limited readership.
0: Yeah, I mean, okay, I'll be, I'll be. Uh shot for this probably but an equally rewarding study is john roberts's photography and its violations now i have to say that i i've met john i've read some of his books i've not finished one for a while there they are quite what i would call what you're saying they're quite academic they're quite difficult to read they're not they don't easily um bring in people who are not really quite Scholarly, I feel. Right. Do, do, okay. you, do, you, do you... Yeah, I do think the... You didn't the say rate. that in your review, so that's, that's me. No,
1: well, I, I think that... I mean, that the new... I forget the the full title of it. Now, Photography and it, its
0: violations. Yeah. Is what we've got to um,
1: I think it's a, a very um, interesting and engaged book. And sometimes... I, I'm not trying to say that because if you want to make some kind of social change through art or through theory, you have to write in a simplistic way. Because the Dada book we've just been talking about is itself quite complicated. I'm not saying it's absolutely easy, and it sh- or it should be. No, no. But the John Roberts book, again, what I liked about that is, um, well, first of all, I mean, it's written for a level of debate, if you like, where, where people are already engaged in debates about photography. So it isn't an easy read. It assumes you know about, at least, or you're going to go and read certain theoretical books about photography. But then it tries to move the debate on, and it tries to to counter some... Uh, ideas that have become prevalent, I think, within the world of photography. For example, there's... Roberts, in his early books, writes about realism and is coming from a Marxist, I suppose, perspective. And it's the idea of, you know, what does photography do? How does it operate in the world that we're in? And what and what power has it got to change things, if it has? And what he does in this book, he says, well, even though we've got the digital world of uh, Photoshop and digital manipulation, which seems to change photography's essence... Right, because you can fake things very And a lot of
0: people have written about that yeah, very thing, yeah. claiming that it really changes, a new, yeah. changes everything.
1: Well, what he does, I'm not quite sure if I'm convinced, really. I mean, I need to look at it again. But I think he tries to argue that that's not as big an issue or not as big a, as a problem as it might be because the issue really is the photographer's intentions and moral uh, seriousness when making and printing up or digitally correcting, if you like, or altering the photograph. Is the photographer and the subsequent set of people dealing with it, maybe like uh, the people in a newspaper or who work in the editorial, editing the photograph, they? are they going to try and com- let the photograph convey the auth- authentic, if that's the word, political situation or realistic situation that the fo- photographer was trying to deal with? So hes it's like asking for good w- goodwill intentions towards the photographer. And i mean when you say about not finishing the john robertson i think they are quite hard work but he he's working you at a hard level when you read it. But I think they're rewarding; it's worth the effort. You know? Yeah.
0: No, I mean I I need to put more effort in. I'm yeah. sure. Yeah.
1: I wasn't trying to. Uh, no, no, no. I do. I mean. I mean when you said that someone might shoot you, I wasn't sure if you meant me. No, or I meant John. John. John might shoot. No, me. no, because no, obviously
0: the thing is, you know, it's it's it, 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 I'm sure it'll be a long book because John's mm. books tend to be long, and 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 I you know, and I always find them valuable. But I just it's a bit like Ulysses. Yeah. You know, I haven't really finished Ulysses, yeah. if I'm honest. Well, I haven't really finished a John Roberts. I mean, they're not. That, which maybe is a good comparison. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know whether you would like I'm not quite sure about that one. I oh, think just shot myself in the foot properly now. Anyway, well, there's not, there was another book um, in, in the current issue um, you reviewed called Art and Politics Now. Yeah. Lavishly illustrated, large format paperback covering themes including globalisation, activism, terror, knowledge. And that was by Anthony Downey.
1: Yeah. Should I talk about that for a minute? Well, moment? yeah, if you, if, you, if you wish to. Well, I think that I get the impression there's a a whole wave of books on art and politics coming out. And that could be good, or it may be bad, or it may be between the two. With the Downey book, I feel that if you read it carefully, you learn a lot, you know, you would learn a lot about artists who are politically engaged in the present world. And what he does, as you say, he has these themes, these one-word chapters and themes, globalisation, labour knowledge, he has his themes, and then he puts artists into those categories. But what I, f- what I felt upon reading it, really, was that this theme of art and politics has become a new academic niche or something, and it's not necessarily about political art. I mean, well, let's try and clarify that. I don't really, I don't know if these artists uh, he uses in these categories lead to anything other than more scholarly essays about art and politics. It seems You mean, sort of, you, mean a, a, you don't know
0: whether they have any political effect? Yeah, exactly.
1: I'm not explaining it very well. There's a whole, like a new genre, and it looks like there's some very good, deep discussions of how art and politics work. But then when you look at the Downey book, I mean, he says things like, in passing, he mentions Jeremy, well, there's a section on Jeremy Deller, and then he, I think he re- uses the phrase, um, point, uses, pointedly apolitical. That's it. Well, then he goes on to the next point he's making, and the next point he's making is not. Why pointedly apolitical might be a problem. So it's not, very, it's not as critical enough as I'd like it. And I felt that with some of the other books I'd read uh, in the summer, uh, that, you know, last summer when I was doing the roundup there, uh, one in particular, which of course, oh yeah, this one, Claudia Mesh, if that's how you say her name, M-E-S-C-H, Art and Politics, another survey book, right? So when you go through that book. Um, There's no mention... It's supposed to be covering uh, art and politics from 1945 to the present. There's no mention of art and language. There's no mention of Gustav Metzger. There's no mention of Critical Art Ensemble, and so on and so on. Okay, so a book can't cover everything, perhaps, but it bothered me a bit that there are some very good critiques of the notion of political art that say it isn't very convincing as as a category by Terry Atkinson and by art and language. So, again, the book is informative, but it doesn't really criticise its own assumptions.
0: Can you can you talk? I said, take 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 the, um, you know, we've got time. Mm. I think it'd be really nice to hear you talk a little bit about um, art and languages. Um, well, you say Atkinson—that's Terry Atkinson yeah. and S- Susan Atkinson—wrote yeah. um, in in a catalogue mutes about um, yeah, the critique of the category of political art.
1: I think about nineteen ninety, approximately. I mean,
0: I know you are going to be. I think. Um, if all goes well reviewing the art and language show which is currently at the listen at the yeah. listen gallery now yeah. i think it's on For still next, in december uh, yes next month yeah. so so that that's the plan but what what is what, what is did you want to talk a little bit about what what yeah, what, sure. what, what, yeah. what why political art is not According to Atkinson... Um, well, uh, as I understand it, I mean it's got uh, effective. it's
1: got a com- complicated argument. But as I understand it, I'm sure, it, I'm sure. What he's saying, or this is already before this spate of books with art and politics um, neatly juxtaposed. He's saying, and he well, him it was Atkinson and his wife worked on that political essay in 1988, I think. Was it as long ago as that? Yeah. But saying the category of political art is a new category that's appearing, and whatever it is, it's not political. It's another genre, another putting into a classification or into a box certain forms of behaviour but once you do that and you go oh, this is political art, it's this kind of thing it does this, then you sort of depoliticise it by framing it as a neat academic category. I think that's part of the critique.
0: And part part of the problem in a way mean, because... It does sound like well because it
1: become what well, the problem is it, be- it be- it's another style of art that the museum can label and write about as another style of art or another artist do this how interesting well it doesn't even capture de- it doesn't, doesn't it. destabilize the uh, the gallery system no you can still sell paintings that are political art you know it doesn't destabilize anything so to kind of label it is to almost like ghettoize it so there here it is here's political art
0: I mean you mentioned critical art ensemble yeah. Um, or on some ensemble. Yeah. Ensemble, I prefer that too. Um, I mean, they work in many different forms, don't they? Yeah, so, definitely. as an example, I mean, in fact, if you actually look look, look them up on their website, for instance, which, yeah. which I did, you 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 would not really, if you came across it, for instance, hmm. know they were even artists. Really, it's well, quite all but different that's of the different forms they use it 's part but, of the cleverness, isn't it? Well, exactly, hmm. because that they appear to be very hard to box, as it were, yeah. and to museumify or mummify, I, well, think, I think is word often. you used actually I mean, at one point.
1: Yeah, did I? <laughs> well, again, last in the summer roundup of books, I think uh, then I covered a book about them. There's a, a new book kind of mapping the practice over the last you know, 10, 15 years, whatever it is. But why I think they're interesting is because they don't stand still. They, don't, they take the money from the grant you know, to do an art project and then they give the money to the poor or something and they mess up the system. They don't agree... They don't do what they're told, you know, and they try and, um, I think, you know, as I understand their practice, deal with specific issues and destabilise, to use that word again, the conventions of reading of them or the, you know, the notion of who the author is, who the viewer is and so on. So that's a more politicised practice, I feel, than some people who've got careers in radical art now.
0: Yes. I mean, I think that book is one of these two, OK, there's Paul Wood's Western Art and The Wider World. Yeah and Griselda Pollock's After Effects, After Images. And and it's in... in I think it's in Wood's book that you, that, that, that um, Art Assembler, Critical Art Assembler um, I mentioned. He says, for 25 years writes Brian Holmes. Have I got that? Oh, no. no, that, no. that makes the Bri- it...
1: The Brian Holmes... What, you're mixing up two books, I think. Oh, that's the beginning of the of other Bra- book, Bra- sorry. There's a
0: book documenting,
1: which I reviewed last summer, in the summer issue, a book documenting 20 years or so of critical art and practice, yeah. And... Brian Holmes has been commissioned to do the essay. Uh, the Paul Wood book is something else I did review and briefly mentioned. I, w- I would have um, liked to have had more space to write about it really. But the Paul Wood book, I mean, I like the title actually, "Western Art and the Wider World," because I think that's already to suggest if we're going to look at the history of Western art, we need to contextualise it and th- think about the rest of the world in relation to our own very, you know, Western centric notion of art so Paul Wood when you read that book as well he he comes across as well not humble because that sounds a bit patronizing but he's not arrogant and he um he says things like I may be wrong on this but to me it seems such and such thing but at the same time it's quite authoritative again Paul Wood was associated with art and language for quite a long time and worked with them and they still work with them sometimes Uh, and you mentioned the Griselda Pollock's book well I felt that was just Like written, it felt like it was written for an audience of eight people who were all, you know, all had PhDs in Lacanian psychoanalysis and she knew them personally. And maybe that's not literally true, but
0: it didn't really invite the
1: broader reader into it.
0: That's her book, After Affects. After images. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's it's a classic example of an academic book, which yeah. is not a crime. I'm not I'm, saying those it's books, not a crime. Yeah, exactly. mean, it's just a very very specialist thing. Yeah, I'm I mean, not saying that those books or that book shouldn't be published. You said a club of experts but, in trauma studies. Who you thought he was written yeah. for?
1: Being trouble for that, but the point. Well, yeah, the you, point I'm, is really that some of these writers we're talking about seem to be able to engage with incredibly complicated issues. In, I mean, you still have to do the work as a reader, like with the John Roberts book, you need to work at it. But you really learn a lot, and it's not assuming that you're already in the know about everything. So, great, let, that's one of the functions of academia, where people can have a space to write about obscure things and particularly, you know, in a particularly detailed way. I'm not against that, I like that, but it is published in the broader world at some point <laughs> well, no, <laughs> well. it isn't
0: always but and if, and if it is no, but, but if the it Griselle is the yeah exactly and if it is therefore you're saying really yeah. it would be it would be helpful if it was actually considered that a bit more I, I feel a
1: lot of academics I mean I'm I, you know I don't know really um, who they think the audience is but I suspect a lot of academics are really writing for people in their field and they, all their friends are academics they're in a college or a university situation all day they don't think about what the world outside academia and I felt that as I say about the the uh, book on Dada that it's really uh, about revolutionary change Uh, and that's what the author seems to be implying he wants us to think about and revolutionary change isn't just for the academics who can afford the book is it so I think the connect the relationship between the point of production of these books which is in the academy as it were and the the distribution of them needs to be thought about
0: yeah, well, I, I, it sounds very sensible to me. <laughs> I'm sure there'll be the letters. letters no, there's some, the some other books we haven't covered, we can try. Yeah. Um, you did also review um, a couple of shows, one in particular in the current issue you, you did at John Hansard Gallery, which oh, yeah. is about money. We might come to that if you'd like to. Yeah, we can um, talk about it. Yeah, you, you, you did um, talk about a book by Ocean Ward, Ways of Looking. Yeah, I um, didn't
1: have much to say about that, did I? No, recall. that's
0: fine. I mean, other chapters in this... It, it, I just thought that was a very reductive um, account of how one
1: could... I mean, it's an introductory book, so obviously you've got to bear in mind the audience might not be a fait with all the terminology of the art world, but I felt it was a bit misleading. That's what I didn't like about it. Right. As an introductory book.
0: Let, let's, let's, let's try... I'm um, talking about the, um, the show at Hansard Gallery. Yeah, which John you, Hansard, yeah. yeah. John Hansard Gallery in Southampton... Had a show which you covered um, very well. Um, called the show is called "Show Me the Money: The Image of Finance, seventeen hundred to the present." Um, now I have to confess, I have not seen the show. I I wish I had. Um, it's a show which is touring. I mean, I know that it goes on. It goes to Manchester. It may have yeah. it's to the People's History Museum, in Manchester, and and I. But you you went down to Southampton and saw it. Just. Out of interest. I mean, it's a show, I find with a lot of work in it.
1: Yeah. I can't remember the number of artists, but it's uh, quite a big show, maybe 20, 30 artists. I can't remember exactly. Um, I mean, I was very interested in reviewing it because I'm interested in the notion of money and uh, what it is. Uh, And I've got a very good friend, uh, a writer and an intellectual, called Mike Peters, who's a kind of expert on money, and we talked to him about it. And... I thought there was a very interesting... I think it's implicit in the show uh, down in uh, Southampton. There's an interesting correlation between the abstraction of money, what money is as an abstract thing... As a concept. As, yeah, as yeah. electronic... You, now, digital or electronic units whizzing around the world on computers, through computers, and not a physical thing. I mean, obviously, it's physical as well, but it doesn't need to be. That and conceptual art. The idea that, that oh. conceptual law has moved to, art has moved into this... Um, Domain, or you know, moves in and out of this domain, which in a way isn't material, physical
0: material. Well, it's also also there's a lot of digital art, in, like on the on on the web, yeah. online, I, I, in various forms that are one removed so, from the physical. I think part
1: of the correspondence is the idea of um, the audience being asked to accept a kind of there's a kind of mental agreement or a sort of agreement you agree that this token this electronic symbol stands for this 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 number of units and with it you can swap an object for it and this, in a way there's a similarity with conceptual art that you know there's this text on the wall then you and maybe a couple of pictures and you read it and you get the you know the idea the meaning the concepts you you don't um necessarily worry about the execution of it Although you might think oh this is so badly printed i can't read it or something but I thought that was quite an interesting juxtaposition to do an art show about it. And then there's also, I think, a kind of parad- you know, paradox in doing that, really. I mean, a lot of the works in the show were conceptual or digital, and only a few artists had um, produced uh, or put into the show you know, more traditional works like paintings. And I think I said in the review that they seemed a bit out of place in a way, like a bit of a token. Well, it's a, to- a show about tokens anyway, but a t- kind of token gesture to more traditional art. But most of the work was... As I say, conceptual or textual, and I I also thought that I mean the the very idea of interrogating what money is is important. And did did you think the show did that? I think it did, but um, I think you need. I mean, I spent a few hours looking at the show because that's all I could do. You know, I had to travel to it, and but there was so much to read and get into and think about. I think it kind of did, but it's asking a lot of the audience to. Well, I'm not saying it should be easy,
0: but it did try to do that. Yeah. Good. Good. Well, listen, Peter, it's been great talking to you. Um, we, we could go on more. Is there anything you particularly would like to cover um, that we've not covered? I know that we, we, there was one point w- w- before the programme we were talking about the, the, the different forms of approaches to criticism. Yeah. And, and, and I I would just love it if, if perhaps you would um, just say... I mean, I tried to get you to say what what, what your approach mm. was about the specific reviews for, this, for these books. But, for instance, would you... I know that in your, in your sort of like a kind of if you had a list in mind, perhaps you would fit into the self-reflexive critic. Yeah,
1: I think. Well, I'd like to think so. Let's put it like that. But
0: but can can you just be really generous and just say you know teach me something about what other kind of critics and how you what you would label? Okay, I could. What what are they?
1: Just as a sort of. Quick lesson, like Quick a mini, le- like a mini right. lecture. What? Two minutes? Have as long as you like. Right? No, no, definitely. Okay. Definitely. Four types of uh, four approaches to art criticism, and I'm sure I've left them out. Okay, but four general approaches. One kind you could call prescriptive or dogmatic, and a good example of that would be Clement Greenberg. And what what I mean by prescriptive or dogmatic is he sets the rules or he tells artists what they should do, how they should do it, when they should do it, kind of. And the artists go, "Oh, Greenberg said this, we better do it." So that's partly to his status.
0: But that Just to stop you there, that's what happened And in his time. You're saying there were artists I'm around saying, then who yeah. actually literally unusually, did really
1: enact... Unusually, in terms of criticism, the critic comes after the after the artwork, doesn't, Usually. doesn't he or she, and they look at what the artist has done and write about it or yeah. comment on it. But with Greenberg, so so on his anyway, his status was so high, became so high in 50s and 60s uh, American art circles, New York, that... Artists were meeting for drinks and saying, "Have you seen this new article by Greenberg? He says we should be doing this.
0: We'd better start thinking about doing that." Did he? Did he actually say though? You know, almost physically what what they should do, yeah, see, well, or did they famously, interpret his words into a way? Famously, that... in
1: 1961, he published an essay called "Modernist Painting," which says the tendency of art is this now, but it should be more this. And the tendency he was referring to is the flat, the flattening of like art paintings should not be illusionistic, representational de- devices, they should emphasise, the artist should emphasise the flatness of the canvas and the picture plane. Yeah. And to do this, you don't um, have any, you know, picturing of anything. You don't have any illusion. Which is very thing. prescriptive. It's very prescriptive. Now, you can say, we don't, well, the good thing about that, the bad thing about prescriptive criticism is it's dogmatic and it tells you what to do. And then... When new things happen, new artists or different artists come along or another generation and invent a new way of making art, that criticism can't deal with it because it's dismissed everything that doesn't Because it was so narrow. Because it's so narrow and and tightly stipulated. But maybe one good thing about that criticism, I remember this myself when I was at art school and Peter Fuller was a big name critic. He's another example of this approach. So if you saw him talk, you'd get so annoyed by him, you'd have a argument against him you know it would i mean now a lot of criticism seems very vague and nobody knows what anybody thinks it's all like a swamp
0: or you know it's not as clear-cut as So uh, your enemy's not obvious or the thing to react against is not clear was
1: supposed to be on the side of the left you ended up thinking well you know he's so assertive and kind of arrogant i don't really agree with this so you had to really you know the good side of that kind of weird byproduct of it is you have to sort of think what do i think about it um another model of criticism if if we've got time is the one you just mentioned, self-reflexive criticism, and a very good example of that would be um, Hal Foster. I think I mentioned him at the beginning of the program, and and this idea of a toolbox where you, where the critic, uh, consciously chooses a model of criticism or a model of thought. So you take a philosophical, you take a sorry, a psychoanalytical model, or you take a feminist sort of position, or you take a Marxist position, and you look at the artwork or the exhibition through the lens, as it were, of those or one of those models, and you say to the audience, well, well, this is one reading if you do it like that. This self-reflective model doesn't claim to be the whole
0: truth. No. So you truth. declare your position and approach, otherwise your yeah. your tools are laid out in the review. Yeah, more or less, yeah. As it were. You, you I mean, might... it can never be completely... No, but case, you can, can, can sort it? of
1: say, from this body of knowledge, and I look at the work through this, this is what what it makes me think of. This is what's produced by these particular tools. And then you could apply different tools to the same object and get different readings a Marxist reading of the object uh, of the painting or whatever uh, again, a psychoanalytic reading whatever you the tools are in a sense on the table for you to see uh, as part of it because you
0: mentioned i think mary kelly 's work for instance wasn't it wasn't couldn't be criticized or was declared as not being art basically because well, fuller that, yeah a Which of which, fuller. Was, which was fuller.
1: And, and whereas because he had such a narrow idea of what art was,
0: whereas your 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 yeah. what you've just described was easily described, we have criticised by that, especially psychological yeah. one or
1: yeah, you could in other words, there's a box of tools to apply to anything you want, right? So and also the person. The artist who's been reviewed can say, well, that's only a reading from that position. My work isn't that. It's these things as well. So it's, it's kind of more honest. That's why I call it self-reflective. It's being conscious of the criticism that you're using and the models you're using.
0: What about what? what else have you got? I've here? got two more um, boxes. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: The critic uh, as an author uh, in their own right or as a writer, and a couple of examples. Uh, this goes back to partly back to Oscar Wilder a dialogue by Oscar Wilde from from 1890 called The Critic as Artist, where he says, it's kind of quite sarcastic, he says, I haven't got time. All these artists wanting me to write about them give up my valuable time. I'm a critic. I'm too busy. So he's going, like, my critical activities and my own practice is more important than these blooming artists bothering me all the time. But a more recent example, a couple of examples, um, Stuart Morgan, famously um, key critic for Freeze magazine. Well, Stuart Morgan...
0: Uh, and, and editor of Artscribe before that. Yeah, right?
1: yeah. <laughs> uh, Stuart Morgan, when he obviously, uh, as you know, we probably know he's uh, he no longer with us, but uh, when a book, of, an anthology of his writings came out after his death, I think, and maybe it wasn't after his death, I'm not sure, but when the book came out, what the butler saw, so I can't remember the year, but Thomas McEverley, another very famous critic, wrote an introduction, and he said that, uh, for the book, and he said that M- Stuart Morgan's practice as a critic was very unusual because when you read a review by Stuart Morgan, there might sometimes not be much mention of the artwork he was ostensibly reviewing, but he'd used the artwork, Morgan would use the artwork, to trigger a little essay, an interesting little essay, and a little sort of creative text that was based partly on the artwork but wasn't standard sort of description and close analysis. So it, he used, according to Machiavelli, uh, Morgan used his role as a critic to kind of produce his own body of his, what is almost critical
0: writing. Sorry, um, creative writing. Yeah, I was going to say, it sounds creative, yeah. and, and, but it wouldn't have existed if he hadn't looked at the work. No, it so, wasn't
1: completely devoid of w- analysing the work. Which but, is
0: lovely, because it's like c- c- one action, one creative action is cr- is creating another creative yeah, action. Yeah,
1: yeah. So that begs the question of where's the border between creative writing and criticism as well, which I think is an interesting Yeah,
0: issue. and we now do have lo- lots of critics or writers certainly we have writers from art monthly who are also practitioners mm. of, of, and would call themselves artists yeah. or, or, or with a you know push. well
1: i think we do, I think that has you know things have changed quite a lot in the last few years and that that's true um, another example of this model uh, critic, the critic as author model is when um, Susan Sontag wrote she wrote um, a quite long obituary of Roland Bart after he died obviously she wrote this obituary in which she said the thing about Roland Bart was But when you look at his writings, his diverse writings, he writes about hundreds, as it were, different things. And she says he couldn't possibly have had deep knowledge about the things he wrote about, but he had a kind of astuteness or a kind of perceptiveness, that you could put any object in front of Roland Barthes, and after a short while, he'd come up with ideas about it and produce a little essay, as she calls it. And I think that is a very creative way of being a critic, to go, well, I'm not scholarly about this particular thing, but it makes me think of this, and I can link it to that, and I can expand it into this. Uh, so that's another, you know, second example, after Stuart Morgan of the
0: Criticers. Yeah, it just author. sounds similar to Stuart, but obviously yeah. not necessarily based on, on art.
1: Yeah, well, it goes, yeah, it goes off in different directions, but just that attitude where the critic won't just sit still and be the official, you know, heal the critic, that's your job. They kind of break out of the mould of criticism in a way and move into another form of uh, writing. And then another kind of category, uh, which is another one, I suppose, is artists as critics. Now, there's different versions of that, but one version is when artists literally are critics. Like I'm a critic and an artist, but... You know, preceding me. Yeah, that's or,
0: the one I, I mentioned earlier, didn't I? Yeah. yeah,
1: yeah. Preceding me, and you know, around me, there's lots of other ones, famous ones. Donald Judd was a critic before he became known as an artist. Uh, Laurie Anderson was a critic. Adrian Searle was an, or, uh, an artist, I think. Yes. Then he became a critic. So there's this overlap. Uh, another well-known one, Patrick Herring, was an art, abstract painter and a critic. So that's like one idea of artists as critics, where they kind of you know move into writing, or they move from writing. But also I think within um, taking it to a kind of extreme, you, some uh, artists I would say are critics within the practice of being an artist. And maybe this is a good example uh, because it ties in with Greenberg who we already mentioned. Greenberg, as I said, laid down certain rules about what artists should do and painter, painters should emphasize the flatness of the canvas and they shouldn't um, involve themselves with representation. So. That was the kind of paradigm or model that was being pushed in the 50s in New York. Along comes Jasper Johns, and he starts painting and showing paintings of objects that contradict Greenberg. So he has paintings of flags, targets, maps, and other things. They are things that are flat in the actual world, so they fit with Greenberg's flatness thing. But they're things that exist, which is Greenberg saying you shouldn't represent so in the in the literally in the practice, I don't mean John's wrote a statement about it. He didn't really, but in the physical practice of making the painting, he kind of criticizes the criticism that's going on. Yes, and I think that's very very uh, interesting. And
0: certainly criticizes other artists and other works, artists as well. Yeah, um, at the same time too, really yeah, doesn't he? So, definitely. Yeah, and I'm sure within the art world that that kind of constant referring to other art. Prior to your own practice, the thing you're yeah. making now, you know that well, that, that that is well, a form criticism really as well, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Oh, you're kind any, of rolling on. Any possibly. new practice
1: or even almost any new work is it potentially a criticism or a commentary on or an expansion and disagreement possibly with other forms of practice?
0: Yeah, which is which is if you're a visual person, is mm. <laughs> your only way of if if you're not say a writer or good at speaking, yeah. then but you have ideas and you have thoughts about. Um, other, other art, that's the only way you can do it as well, and, anyway. And that's
1: when it's happening in art, isn't it? You know, it's happening in the art, and then obviously that's not without a, a framework of language and discussion and commentary and people, like critics, pointing things out or bringing things out of the world and saying, have you noticed this about so-and-so's work? But, yeah, I mean, ultimately... It, I mean, otherwise it would be an illustration, wouldn't it, of a... Yeah. So if someone can, in the practice, make a kind of disturbing reading of, a, of the current situation... Or the current art world situation. That is a form of criticism, I suppose.
0: I think we'll leave it there. That's brilliant. Thank you so much for Thanks talking. very much. Really enjoyed it. I hope you've enjoyed it. Um, we had lots of paper and magazines lying around and things. And talking of the magazine, just so that you know, um, if you wish to read Art Monthly, we would love you to do so. The simplest and cheapest way is to take up what is horribly called a direct debit, but it's £36 to have a whole year's worth of Art Monthly's. That's 10 issues. £36, that's £3.60 each one. It's the cheapest way, and you can go to Art Monthly's website, www.artmonthly.co.uk. You can buy it there online now. And we also have just recently completely scanned and have every issue ever made of Art Monthly. That's from issue number one of 1976 right through to now, is available as an archive, searchable online as well. Currently, that comes with a subscription free. It won't forever, because we're going to have to start charging for it, but we really hope you do come in quick, get your sub in, and take advantage. Thanks a lot for listening, and I'm sure you'll hear Peter and I again in the future. Goodbye.